0: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking
2: about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
1: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to, to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. In the second half, we're going to be talking with an expert on China, how he sees one of the uh, the big stories of the both the, the election and sort of longer-term uh, global economy, what's going on in China. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, we're going to be talking about the election politics in the first half with with uh, an expert focusing on that in Washington, D.C. But Professor Siegel, it's been another eventful week. No stimulus package. We thought we might get that last yeah, week.
2: Yeah, I, I, we had that great news just before the last one, and uh, Kudlow was premature definitely on that. It, uh, you know, a, 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 a disappointment. Um uh, i was actually on cnbc later that day i mean uh... we would be better off with a stimulus package there's there's no question there will be a stimulus package on after the election no matter who who would would it be in january with the new Congress or where no matter who wins it's a, it's, it's really too bad that people are being held hostage uh... here to uh... to the politics of the situation it's not impossible that something is going to get done but Two weeks, of the election. You know, one wonders what calculations. I know that the Pelosi is getting heat from another uh, the Democrats, but you know they can't argue with the polls going her way, and so she thinks she she holds a uh, uh, a winning hand. Uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about really no big movement in the polls. I mean, in the in, in the betting market, I'm predicted it, it's sixty forty, Biden uh, Trump. Um, uh, it's a few, certainly a few points better than when he first got COVID and people were really about worried about, you know, how he'd get through it. Um, the, uh, if, you know, if you go to the, um, uh, Nate Silver, he thinks it's 88-12. Now, you know, people say, yeah, but he was wrong four year, four years ago. Well, at that particular point, I think he said 72-28. So actually now he's, he, 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 the polls uh If the polls are as wrong as they were in in sixteen uh Trump will still lose, so you know the now Biden has moved to a point where in every state, if they are as wrong as they were now could they be more wrong of course they could um i I've mentioned a number of times that a lot of corrections were made, and the pollsters were right in uh eighteen, although you know Trump wasn't directly on the uh uh ballots uh, back then so you know there there's there's still a possibility on the senate still 2 to 1 again if the election were real today uh the democrats would have uh, and they went exactly according to the betting markets right now it would be 51 um 49 democrats uh as i i think the the i think the markets can definitely live with a de- a biden in a 51 49 um, uh you know, they're not going to love the tax increase, but uh they're gonna love the spending um, uh- if now, if there's a democratic wave now there's a lot of confusion in what that means. Some people say a democratic wave is they take all three branches. that's not a wave that's almost expected at this particular juncture. I mean way in addition, so the Democrats pick up uh you know ten seats, go to you know fifty six forty four i I think that would be a little troublesome for the market. I'd have to digest that because there's more chance of a more radical uh democratic perspective. Fifty one forty nine they could live with. It. There will be a tax increase. It wouldn't be radical or there wouldn't be a lot of radical measures, you know, that would be enacted. Um I also looked at the betting markets. There's a betting market for when the election will be called. Um uh, right now it's um uh it's up to seventy one percent It'll be called on Tuesday or Wednesday. That was l- lower than fifty percent at one point, so people think it's going to be called that uncertainty is going to more out of the way That's one reason the markets are responding well, they don't want election uncertainty and fights and all the rest you know Biden's going to win all right, let him win or let there be a transition so definitely there's there's uh there's there's going to be that fifty one forty nine if it does turn out that way in the Senate. I don't, I, I imagine there, there will be a tax reform. It will be, it will be punishing on capital gains for high-income people. There's just no question about it. Um, but uh, it will be moderated along the edges. Um, and I think that that's what the market's saying on that. That's why it could be a problem with something like a 56-57 Democratic uh, win. Um, on the economy side, yeah, we got retail sales, which uh, were really fairly good. I mean, you know, the virus is going up. Yes, hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are not going up, although some people do refer to the lab. We just know how to treat them much better. Um, I mean, uh, uh, let let me mention about the um, the Pfizer news on that they uh, could be seeking a EUA, which is a emergency use uh, authorization for their vaccine in mid November. Um, I, uh, mid or, or end of, of November, um, my belief is that they wouldn't say that, the they're required to follow, um, after the trials are over, even after it shows, effectiveness. I mean, it could be 99 percent, in fact, I don't believe it's going to be that high, but it could be, they cannot, uh, apply for EUA until they have two months of data, post that people aren't getting sick. And they're waiting in that now. So I'm reading between the lines. I think they got some really good news on this data, but they're holding back. I mean, obviously, it's going to be post-election, but they're holding back um, because they need the two months of safety data in order to qualify for FDA EUA. So You know, I I read that in between the lines is that that we got we do have a successful um, vaccine there, which is positive. Others are going to be there. I do know there's been some more halts. You know, a lot of that is to be expected. Um, But um, I I think the Pfizer news is 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 is, is, is definitely uh, is definitely good news uh, there. So I think everyone's now going to be waiting. I mean we're tired with the ads There's so many of them we are we well, know people supposed to be 94% have made up their minds although in a close election that other 6% at the end could in fact uh, move it uh, um um uh, uh one way or the other stocks actually doing a little bit better i mean you know Nasdaq rose right and S&P close to the highs It's faltered a little bit uh, subsequent to that um but uh uh let me mention a little bit uh before we go to our the questions I know that people have written in. Um, you know, the basic premise of my optimism all the way from April, May onward was this tremendous increase in liquidity and people ask me, uh they say, Jeremy, yeah, there was a great great big increase in M one, M two money supplies. Has that continued? Yes, at a much more moderate rate. Um, the big burst came from March to June where we had almost a 40 percent increase again, the biggest in 75 years um, in, in that short period. Um, since then it's been moderate but I've looked at the percentage increase and we're still 10, 12 percent increase in m1 and M2. So we're still uh, I, uh, which is twice the increase that we had before the COVID. So it's not increasing as fast. Now, if we get a stimulus bill, I expect you know, those checks are going to be going into people's deposits funded by the Federal Reserve. I expect another burst of, um, of uh, liquidity. Uh, then, again, the, the, that 2021 is going to be an extremely uh, strong year uh, in the economy.
1: Yeah, we're, you know, the, uh, if you think about what can, is there any news that can turn it from, um, from Biden? You know, there's, there's obviously some more news stories this week on, on Biden. Are, are anything, these things do you think at the margin going to. Yeah, I
2: mean, I, I imagine there's going to be, uh, October surprises. Uh, both of them are holding back information. Um, the truth of it is, I think the public has gotten kind of immune. Um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, to a lot of it, uh, I, 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 I hearken back, uh, how many was it, uh, 20 years ago, um, Bush against Gore, and a week before the election, um, it was revealed that uh, Bush was uh, arrested for a DUI, and that was considered shocking news that would turn the election. Uh, can you imagine today uh, that being considered shocking news given, you know, all the revelations in Trump and and to a certain extent, you know, Biden but much more Trump. I mean it's like, huh? Are you kidding me? Um, you know, our the bar has been raised so much that you know, unless we have a murder somewhere here in the past, uh, to, to be revealed, um uh, I'm feeling are people saying, uh, more fake news, more this, more that you know, I've made up my mind. But it's, you know, not again, not impossible that's you know when, you know that's there you know that's why there's you know that's why the uh, that one, that's why I think the political markets are are where they were and with with these polls um uh if this was the uh day or two before the election, you know my feeling is the betting markets instead of being sixty forty would be seventy five twenty five uh in favor of biden but uh, you know again and something could be revealed. Uh, then, and I'm sure both sides have ammunition to that score
1: yeah it'll be interesting to see the last few weeks and we 're going to be talking with a, a political strategist here for for the remainder of the, the first half here to get his take uh, it, what, you know, we've been we 've been doing these um, f- this feature where people can write in questions to you and, and ask them at the email address for if you want to ask your questions Professor Siegel ask siegel s i e g e l at wisdomtree.com, and we, we welcome all your questions uh, and and so there was a follow up to last week 's question professor on the holding period. Uh, and they you, you know in terms of the the returns in long term returns versus short term returns, you know you mentioned older investors might initially say they have a longer holding period but they still don't like volatility and therefore. The bond allocations mm. as a hedge asset, uh, you know, makes sense. I mean, they they sort of reference is this myopic loss aversion that you know behavioral concept that people are too frequently watching what's going on yes. and uh, underestimating holding periods. And then, how do you think about this for people, and, and how should they adjust their holding per- their period as they age? To yeah, manage I mean, it's this.
2: really this is really hard. You're you're you you have to o- uh, overcome very strong psychological forces, um, which is, um, I, mean, I mean, you just take a look at COVID. I mean, you know, it was down 32% uh, in, in a few weeks, and people panicked, and then it regained all and more. Now, if you're a 30-year-older, you know, you say, oh, my God, look at that blip. Didn't matter. Um, and yet it affects people dramatically because they have to think, oh, my God, if it stays down... Which no sell-off has stayed down, but nonetheless, you know, uh, you know, you know, what the narratives become? Uh, can I survive? And I mean, and 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 that fear is what drives people to fixed income, and why stocks usually get, uh, you know, we, we we call it the equity risk premium. It's so high because of this psychological fear, and you could call, call it, uh, you know, loss aversion you know kinda and Tversky in in terms of behavioral economics what you know we 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 just hate to take losses uh we overreact to the short run um and it has to be a trained uh reasoned um a process by which you can overcome it and everyone has it and it 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 is not easy but that is you know the reason why people hold bonds and given the volatility you know we've you know, we had the barrier. we had the dot-com crash, and we had the financial crash, and then we had the kill COVID. Again, huge bounce backs, which brought the market to, to way all-time high. If you have 30-year allocations, you shouldn't have, you know, cared at all. Um, and yet, um, you know, those drive that move towards bonds.
1: Well, Very good. Thanks uh, for starting the show here with us. Have a great weekend.
2: Thank you very much. See you next week.
1: I'm going to introduce our guest, Jonathan Ward, who's the founder of the Consultancy Atlas organization, who's focused on the rise of China, as well as the U.S.-China global competition. Dr. Ward wrote a book last year, China's Vision of Victory. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Markets.
0: Hi, Jeremy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to talk to you. Uh, Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your research and uh, yourself, and then we can get into the thesis and and what you wrote about in China's Vision of Victory.
0: Sure, you bet. So, um, you know, my work is basically on Chinese grand strategy. Um, I did my doctorate at the University of Oxford in China-India relations, um, spent about a decade abroad in a variety of different places around Eurasia, uh, particularly Asia and the Indo-Pacific. Um, then came back to D.C., um, you know, founded my consultancy, started working with the U.S. Department of Defense, and then with Fortune 500s uh, to help people navigate these new changes in the U.S.-China relationship and understand um, the long-term vision that the Communist Party of China, um, you know, holds and is executing upon. So this, of course, is has uh, is, is changed everything really in the last few years. I mean, it, the, the sort of advent of Chinese military power, the, the sort of um, unveiling of their broader global ambitions, and obviously the United States has now begun to respond to all of that. Um, and China's vision of Victory was just uh, essentially the first book to put um, Chinese Communist Party uh, official documents, um, you know, the strategy documents, the vision statements, all the stuff that really shows you how this machine works, how this vision is conceived, to put that all before the reader. So it it had a very nice impact. It was very widely read, especially in government and national security, starting to be read in the finance and business community. And, you know, it's a guide to what's really going on here and what we're dealing with as a country. So it's kind of a need to know.
1: All right. So in in, obviously the the book is uh, got a a lot of details in there. But if you say you're if you want to paint people's in in, in short synopsis form, what is China's vision of victory there?
0: Sure. So it's an idea that that um, you know the, the party has brought to the Chinese people, and they call it the Great Rejuvenation of the Chinese Nation. And it's this concept that China was essentially humiliated at the hands of foreign empires, and that now they're on track to regain their position of supremacy in the international system. So they see themselves as a country that was dominant in the known world uh, prior to you know contact with with nearly um, the West and and other places, um, and that finally through the leadership of the party, and this has been a long-term project since 1949, they're going to um, take their place, their rightful place as they see it, um, at the head of all nations and essentially to dominate the international system. And they intend to do this uh, through essentially um, becoming the world's leading economy, the world's top military, uh, the world's leading technological power. And, you know, all of their strategy documents express very clearly how this works, industry by industry, technology by technology, region by region across the globe. I mean, they have strategies for everything from Africa to the Antarctic, from AI to, um, you know, key strategic industries. And um, they look at the United States as the obstacle to their ultimate uh, seizure of power. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, the, the, this topic is coming up increasingly. I mean, the, the, the friction that the, we had to focus on a trade war. I was listening to actually just earlier t- this morning, Citadel Securities was hosting Hank Paulson talk about the China relationship. And he's been warning about a China economic uh, iron curtain that can sort of fall on us. Uh, and and I, I think you would describe China as a, a major adversary that we have. How, how would you just say, like, with this adversarial relationship, um, you know, how do you see this playing out over to, over time?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, they've been very explicit about their desire to build military power um, and to um, go to war with their neighbors. So that's that's one thing that I think people need to take note of. I mean, just this week, Xi Jinping was talking to the Chinese Marines and saying that they need to focus on uh, preparing for war. Um, this is sort of a common um You know, thing that he'll say to to troops that's been going on for for some years now. Um, So certainly there are military ambitions. I mean, you had the first use of the Chinese military in the 21st century on the Indian border um, just this summer. And yet in the 20th century, they went to war with um, the USSR, with India, with Vietnam. They fought the United Nations and the United States and the Korean Peninsula. So there's some very clear military ambitions here as well, and I think that is um, exceedingly dangerous. Um, There's also what some call the ideological competition. I mean, China's goal I mean, they were very explicit in an internal party document about trying to stomp out um, any sort of uh, uh, tendency towards constitutional democracy, um, universal human rights, uh, Western values, these sorts of things. So the party sees all of that as a threat. Um, And ultimately... Their goals are really uh, to consolidate a new trading system with China at the center, I mean, that's what you see in the Belt and Road, to dominate major strategic industries, that's what you see in Made in China 2025, and to convert this all into military power that will allow them to prevail in conflict um, with any given neighbor or with the United States itself. Um, so they're converting the economic engagement that people like Hank Paulson led for many years in U.S. policy into military power that's ultimately directed against the U.S. and our allies.
1: Yeah, when you think about that military potential um, conflicts, I mean, there's, you're, you did a big study on China and India relations. That seemed to be one of the things that was flaring up recently. There's a, there's a perennial discussion about Taiwan. Uh, what do you think is the most likely... If there is a real actual conflict in, in militarily, wh- where do you think it's going to come from?
0: What's most likely? Well, if if there were to be um, a military conflict, it would be somewhere that they consider to be their sort of a uh, immediate core interests, or um, you know, sort of near uh, peripheral geography. So that could be South China Sea, it could be Taiwan, it could certainly be the China India border. Um, you know, there, there are quite a lot of uh, you know things that they they. Take
1: uh, take quite seriously. We're talking with jo- Dr. Jonathan Ward, who is uh, has an Atlas Consultancy He's focused on the relationship with China. And and Dr. Ward, you talk a lot about sort of the the civil military fusion in terms of everything going on there, having this this military ties. Maybe expand on um, on where that comes into focus for you as as people think about uh, maybe investing in China.
0: Sure. Well, civil military fusion is 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 really the main reason. Um, that China's a dangerous investment. Um, And and the reason is they're converting their civilian industries into military potential. And this takes place in in ways that we wouldn't think of um, conventionally when we're thinking about military power. It's not just, you know, um, AVIC building um, next-gen fighters or or CSSC-building ships. Um, I mean, they're also converting logistics companies, tech companies, all of this into um, elements of of a, you know, a new, um, you know, modernized military that in some ways is designed, um, you know, on on the U.S. joint force and in others is is quite a unique um, uh, thing. But the bottom line is, you know, you're talking about taking the civilian economy, converting it into military power, and when investors are looking into China, uh, they need to realize that essentially what we're doing is we're funding this buildup. Of, um, of a hostile, um, you know, military power. And and the other side of it, of course, is the human rights abuses. I mean, the systemic, um, you know, state-sanctioned um, human rights abuses in Xinjiang or Tibet or elsewhere, um, the high-tech surveillance system. I mean, these are all the uses that are, that are you know, coming... Um, into the picture as, as we go and engage with them on trade and tech and all the rest of it. I mean keep in mind that in the in the 1980s they was essentially an agrarian economy. and the last 40 years have turned them into something that um, you know has, has wildly altered the military balance in the Pacific and created um, a leading edge um, economy that can innovate. Um, and the idea that that's a good place to seek long-term returns, I think um, misunderstands that that this place is is headed into some 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 real dangerous territory in its region and with the world. Um, so bottom line, the other side of it is the US is going to have to sanction this place. You know, I think what we've seen under the current administration is really just the beginning of what needs to be done in terms of cutting down their ability to produce, um, you know, geopolitical power. So for an investor to be essentially, um, you know, funding and and contributing to the strategic industries, the emerging technologies, um, the the general economic power of this adversarial nation is, uh, you know, I I think that's a very, uh, very dangerous place to be
1: I mean, it's it's interesting on talking about the return opportunity. I mean, China, we think about the tensions that we've had with the trade tensions with Trump. Uh, it's still been within the emerging markets that, that people look at as strategic allocations. It's been one of the best performing emerging markets. Their share in broad indexes keep rising. It's up to about 40 percent of the broad MSCI emerging markets index is now coming to China. China tech has been a real standout this year. And if you think about who can compete with U.S. tech. You don't see the sort of growth profiles that we have in in the U.S. of a Google and and Facebook and Amazon, uh, as you do as you get like an Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and, and those companies over there. Um, it, it, so it's interesting, you know, in this in where this relationship shakes out, uh, and and your point on sanctioning and the, and the potential. You know, there's there's movements from people to restrict pension investments in China. Is is that things you think people should be getting ahead of? How do you think these relationships are going to play out?
0: Yes, I mean, I mean, to be invested in this place, of course, it's growing. I mean, this is let me tell you what um, the the, uh, the Pentagon's report to Congress was saying this summer, that China has the largest standing ground force, the world's largest Coast Guard, the world's largest Navy, the Indo-Pacific's largest air forces. I mean, this is what this is what's growing. Over there. I mean, it's you know, if one looks at this in terms of growth rates and returns, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there were there were business relationships with um, you know Germany in the 1930s and such. You have to understand where the geopolitics are headed, and you have to understand what this place is trying to do, um, and you know, to, to 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 look at a growing totalitarian state that's in conflict with its region. And is essentially the chief adversary of the United States of America as an investment opportunity, I, I think is um, you know just really begs the question of of how um, you know do, do people really understand what they're doing? I, I don't think I don't think that um, that this has all fully been processed um, in the investment community.
1: And so you know certainly when we at the uh, at the end of our last session we had you know discussion on on so you have Trump on one end of the spectrum ramping up tensions with china uh maybe you put uh our last guest put obama you know if you put a one to ten you they had obama as a one and trump as a ten on on sort of antagonism with china and he put actually biden as a five or six if you think about the future relationships do you do you agree with that characterization where do you think the, the the future administrations
0: might lean in the relationships with china well, I think the problem is really just getting started. It's been brewing for for you know at least a decade or two, but just now are we coming into an awareness of what this situation is? And I, I think you're right. I mean, Obama was part of sort of a broad um, U.S. strategy that that is inherited from Kissinger of engagement. But let me read you a quote from a Chinese, um, you know, official Communist Party newspaper during the Obama years. This is in 2013, before the trade war, um, you know, before any of really. Um, U.S. uh, response to China's uh, dangerous ambitions, it says, um, because the Midwestern states of the United States are sparsely populated, in order to improve the killing effect, the nuclear killing of U.S. soft targets should concentrate on major major cities on the West Coast, such as Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Diego. If the Dongfeng 31A is launched over the North Pole, it can easily destroy a series of large cities on the East Coast and in New England, such as Ann Arbor, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Portland, Baltimore, and Norfolk. The population of these cities accounts for one eighth of the total population of the United States. And that's right in the heart of the years of engagement. I mean, this is, what it, this is what's going on in Chinese language. And I don't think that's really what, what people have been aware of as they pursue it as a business opportunity. So you're,
1: you know, when you think about what you're doing, you know, so you're working with um, your consultancy is trying to consult our politicians. How are you working with with companies to try to advise on on strategy?
0: Uh, Sure. So, I mean, my, you know, what what I do, I mean, on one hand, my my book has been widely read in government. You know, I was invited to the White House for the signing ceremony, the phrase one trade deal and um, commended by the president in front of Fortune 500 CEOs, which was a, an interesting moment in life. Um, but what we do for companies um, is to help them, under you know, sort of rethink China risk, understand the risk profile that they actually have when, um, you know, based on their operations and goals in the China market and in the broader Indo-Pacific. We help them understand uh, risks emanating from the U.S. response to China as a geopolitical adversary. Uh, We help them with aspects of of India as well. I mean, that's another key feature of this. And uh, we've also worked with funds as well to help them understand portfolio risk. Um, you know, and, and also to look for, you know, the other side of this equation is that the United States is going to have to win the economic contest with China. I mean, it's the only way to tip the balance here. If these guys keep catching up to us economically, ultimately the military balance will will, will fail. And um, you really could proceed towards, um, you know, something like a, a, a permanent um, ascendancy of the PRC. So. You know, as the u s. gets in gear to um, start to win this long competition or at the very least um, attempt to to prosecute this long term competition, it's going to require rebuilding our strategic industries, leading in the key emerging technologies, um, withholding those as best one can from the People's Republic of China, but also integrating with our allies and partners worldwide from India to Japan to Europe to a whole bunch of other places. so you know, there, there's an opportunity side here because the United States is going to have to win an economic competition, and um, you know, we also talk to people a great deal about what uh, what that could look like and what the the key pieces on the on the radar screen uh, are starting to be.
1: You know, if, if so, if if the U.S. gets into this real deep adversarial relationship, you'd have to you know to block other. You know, the, the, it's a global economy here, and you know people do not like the trade war dynamics. It certainly creates a lot of ramifications throughout throughout the markets. You know, do you, how consensus around the globe and in other parts of the world do they view the same relationship Is Europe viewing China the same? Is is, is the rest of Asia viewing it the same way? How do you, How do you think that relationship? Well, evolves? Jeremy, it's
0: it, it's a global political economy. So at the end of the day, I mean, to look at this from the perspective of markets and think that this is all just going to be seamlessly integrated misunderstands, you know, many, you know, important realities of, of you know, world affairs. I mean, this is, you know, we are deeply into an adversarial relationship with China, and this is already begun. I mean, their ambitions are very, you know, on very clear display here, and we're sort of waking up to that. And ultimately, it's going to um, consolidate a uh, new international relationships. I mean, Europe is starting to get this picture. I mean, the human rights side is has been a wake up for them. Hong Kong has been a wake up for them. Um, you know, I speak to, to European uh, defense departments and things like that. They all understand this pretty, pretty well. Um, you know, China's losing its relationship with India. Um, it's, you know, got very tough tensions with Japan. So um, so, so I think to look at this purely through the lens of global markets and to, and to not um, incorporate the sea change in geopolitics, you know, because geopolitics basically became a sort of bargain bin concept i think in the last 20 years maybe i mean it's the world has been so stable based on the U.S. victory in the Cold War, that, that you really could have this sort of globalization of markets, et cetera. But um, today that's all changing, mainly because of the rise of China. Um, you know, I think Russia and a few others impact that too. But you're talking about a very different world here. And I think it's time for people to start putting those pieces together, understanding what, you know, how this is shaping up for the next decade. I mean, you really have to think a little more long-term about it to understand, um, you know, the direction of what's happening right in front of us and And within that, you have a a very new system I think that's going to be taking shape um and the fundamental you know entree points to understanding this are are one what China wants because that's been you know what the vision of victory is i mean that's that's a very clear thing on which to base an understanding of the next decade, and then also that the United States cannot accept that i mean you know what they have in mind is something that really uh you know won't be accepted by america and we have a bipartisan consensus on china as a very dangerous place at this point so so i think investors need to need to um be working within a new framework for understanding um you know what's going to happen in the world
1: yeah, I mean, the bipartisan nature is, I think, one of the interesting things, you know, because I, I think there is a bunch, you know, including myself, who would have said that I thought, uh, you know, Trump was going to be the more antagonistic, but the more the bipartisan it becomes that that, that perhaps, you know, it, even under a Biden victory in this this upcoming election, something that we'll, we'll have to be watching pretty closely. What, what do you think the most likely next, so there was the big trade friction, as you think about the different policy actions, you mentioned sanctions, you know, how close do you think that type of, of actions are, Where where, where do you think actually the the battleground for what we, you know, what the U.S. is is going to do,
0: steps that we might take in, in this relationship? I think it, it really comes down to China's access to, to finance um, from the United States and from the West more broadly. Um, I mean, if you look at what's happened thus far in, in American policy, I mean, commerce has, has used um, a pretty uh, effective toolkit in the entities list and and, you know, other forms of export control. Um, you know, State Department has obviously reoriented towards uh, China uh, as the strategic uh, challenger and threat. Um, but really, Treasury I think has not yet, um, you know, been been brought to the table on this in the in a way that would be, um, you know, uh, bring impairment to to China's ambitions. And, and Treasury has a massive and important toolkit that's been used in the past. So, so I think the finance side is the piece that um, that is really yet to be deployed. Um, and you know, that, that in many ways, is is, uh, where a lot of the, the biggest, uh, guns are.
1: We're sort of in our final closing thoughts, any, you know, where people can stay in touch with your work and where they can find you if they want to engage you for, for different relationships.
0: Sure. Absolutely. You can visit, um, my website, my company Atlas organization. So atlasorganization.com. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a, an info page there. You just write to us that way and um you know that we 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 do consultations we work with with all kinds of um different organizations and companies and funds and such uh, so please do be in touch this was
1: a, a very you know interesting conversation dr ward i mean there's uh, it's a pretty a pretty straight view on on where you think the relationships are and uh, and to and be be, be cautious on china is, is obviously the bottom line of your your conclusion but uh, no thanks for joining us to to discuss this you've been listening to behind the markets on SiriusXM 132 thanks to our producer patty hall our sound engineer chris tooks i'm jeremy schwartz you can listen to us on our behind the markets podcast every week have a great week everybody